Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times. Mary Catherine Carmichael cannot be with us today, but I'm here with uh, three guests in the studio as we uh, take on the topic of uh, juvenile courts and actually the process of waiving juveniles into adult court. Uh, with me in the studio are Jody Madeira, an IU associate law professor specializing in criminal law, David Powell, the head of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, and Dan Schrader, who's a, a Dan Schroeder. Right. Should we pronounce it Schrader? Schrader, okay. <laughs> All right. Attorney with the Indiana Public Defender's uh, Juvenile Court. He's from Marion County. He's, Correct. He's a public defender. If you uh, have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can join the conversation, uh, a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, thanks for being here today, everybody. I know two of you drove uh, from Indianapolis, right? Good. Correct. Right. <laughs> Dave Powell's from Greene County, though, so he's he's very familiar with, with Bloomington and Monroe County. And an IU Bloomington graduate, All right. so there you at go. least undergrad. <laughs> well, I think this topic is um, really relevant to people around here um, because of two cases that occurred in Martinsville recently. One case, a 15-year-old was actually um, waived into adult court, and in the other case, an 11-year-old was not, was stayed in juvenile court, and we can get into those cases a little bit more later. But I wanted to ask uh, Dave Powell first about, you know, the requirements. You know, what, what's it take to, to waive a juvenile into adult court? Well, well the first decision is, does the uh, juvenile court have jurisdiction? Uh, there are a number of offenses if the juvenile is 16, uh, where the juvenile court simply does not have jurisdiction. Uh, offenses like murder, rape, kidnapping. Uh, certain drug offenses. So that's the first question a prosecutor will look at is, does juvenile court have jurisdiction? Mm-hmm. So if you get if you get to that point where they have jurisdiction and it's not one of these non-jurisdictional offenses, then you have to look at the age of the juvenile and the nature of the offense and determine whether it's a, a shell wave mm-hmm. situation or if it's a may wave situation. The shell wave is if the, under those statutes, if the prosecutor, for example, in Indiana, which is uh, I think a minority state for this age, but uh, for the offense of murder, uh, a child as young as 10 or a juvenile as young as 10 can be waived uh, into adult court if uh, if the request is made by the prosecutor. And that's a shell waive uh, situation. So uh, you have to show probable cause and there's a hearing to determine that. But if you meet that minimum standard, then the court will, will waive that juvenile. And of course, once a juvenile is waived into adult court in Indiana, they're forever waived. Mm-hmm. So you don't redo it a second time. And it also applies to any lesser included offenses. So once a juvenile is waived on a particular criminal offense, uh, then if there are any lesser charges, then those are included. There's also a number of statutes where the court doesn't have jurisdiction, like for, in, for ordinances and infractions and some OVWI offenses. Once you're 16, uh, juvenile court may not have jurisdiction in those offenses. So it's, it's a fairly complex uh, evaluation by the prosecutor at the time uh, uh, when they look at the facts and try to make the decision on how to proceed. Mm-hmm. So it, it is the prosecutor's uh, – it, it's a, under the prosecutor's jurisdiction basically to say, I would like to waive this defendant into adult court. And then, yeah, it's, it's, there's again, a there's a, again that you have to look at the law and see how the law applies, mm-hmm. uh, see where they fit. First of all, in certain situations, as I said, if they're 16 – and over and commit a murder, then they're filed as an adult. That's right. really an, uh, not much of a decision to make because the law says that. Uh, but in other situations, uh, yeah, the prosecutor has to make that call. Yeah. What about – and I guess I'll ask Jody first. I mean the, the whole idea of you know, being able to try a, what, a 10-year-old you said in Indiana for – That's for murder. For that murder unique and, offense. And, 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 that's the, and that's the only 10-year-old statute. The only 10-year-old <laughs> statute. Okay. But it, it seems to me if I remember – I've been around a long time, so – you know, 
wasn't it the Paula Cooper case? That, that, do you all recall that? It was a case, 13-year-old girl and Gary, very heinous crime. Mm-hmm. And I think it was after that case that, <clears throat> that there was sort of a groundswell of what are we going to do with her? We, and she was waived into adult court, I think, as a 13-year-old. Um, I actually remember being interviewed by some Italian television station then about how could Americans do this kind of thing. But, but since then, and that was probably 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, seems like this issue has been a little bit more uh, prominent. Do you remember that, Dan? I do. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't have anything to do with it, obviously, yeah. but uh, I do remember when they waived her and she was in the adult prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was – it was it was uh, a lot of notoriety for that case, mm-hmm. which is interesting because nowadays it's it's not common, but uh, they are waving eleven year olds uh, in different counties mm-hmm. uh, without all the fanfare. Mm-hmm. So, Jody, what's the what's the downside to to this to, to waving? The, I mean, what what happened when you have the, these young this young of a, an offender? Um, should they be in adult court? Um, I think the problem is knowing where to start with describing, you know, how how bad it is uh, for some for some juveniles to be in the situation. I mean, um, from my research, I do a lot of not law and emotion and neuroscience, and from that perspective, you know, you have these neuroscience studies, very broad, have very general findings um, that show uh, that the brain is not mature, you know, particularly until the mid-20s. And so when you're looking at these very early ages, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, um, the legislatures and the media and the public tend to look at the harms and they say, well, the juvenile crime uh, results in the same harm as an adult crime. Therefore, the stakes should be the same. But the processing in the juvenile's brain is very, very different. I mean, most times, uh, if you look at this from a neuroscience perspective, the amygdala is the source of, you know, this uh, emotional, sensual, sensory processing, you know, and it's almost like Pleasure Island is developed earlier than, you know, the reins that control Pleasure Island or the bridges that connect Pleasure Island to the mainland of reason, um, if you can talk about things so simplistically. And so... They perceive the risks and the rewards, but not necessarily the consequences of these behaviors. And so, of course, these, that means not only that juveniles are less likely to um, have impulse control, but that they're also less likely to anticipate the long-term consequences of their behaviors, and they're less likely to be able to be meaningful participants in criminal adjudication. Mm-hmm. Have, has there been any research done about the impact of uh, maybe in deterrence of having the potential that, well, if you do this, you could wind up in adult court. You know, is there research on that? Right. Um, well, in criminal law, deterrence arguments generally fail. I mean, mm-hmm. from anywhere from death penalty to felony to mm-hmm. um, wherever. But there have been two studies and only really um, two studies that I'm familiar with. Um, and you're, I'm surprised that this is not studied more because deterrence is one of the primary objectives given. And um, the two studies both found that the threat of adult criminal sanctions really had little to no effect on 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 rates of serious juvenile crime. In fact, um, in some cases, um, once more juveniles started being waived into adult criminal court, the the um, offenses uh, the offense rate went up, not down. Let me let me comment on that. It's been my experience of being a prosecutor for 20 years and being involved in probably thousands of criminal cases from juveniles to adults is that most criminals when they commit a crime aren't worried about getting caught and being punished and they generally don't think about it that way it's after they get caught that they realize Mm -hmm. that's an issue Mm -hmm. one of the real limiters for indiana and this is what prosecutors have to face with under our juvenile punishment system when a juvenile's adjudicated as a delinquent and placed in the system, that's only good until they're 18, mm-hmm. unless you have some special circumstance to keep them longer. So say you have a 16-year-old who commits a murder, you don't waive them. And, and, and of course, it would be waived here. It's, they don't have sure. jurisdiction over it. Let's assume a 15-year-old. So mm-hmm. that would be the one below the 16-year-old cutoff. That means in three years they get out. Mm-hmm. You know, And when you tell that to a victim who's had their uh, loved one uh, killed, uh, they don't get that, and, and so you know when it's when it is a, a premeditated killing, uh, and someone's life is taken, and they are 15, if you will. And, I, and I've had those cases. I've I've prosecuted juveniles, uh, 15, 16, and 17 year olds who committed horrible crimes, sometimes with a, with an adult, sometimes with another, uh, if you will, a 17, 18, or 19 year old. You know, the, you, those folks uh, have to be held accountable, and uh, 
it's not fair to leave them in juvenile court, give them two years in the you know in the, in the boys' school, and then let them come out at eighteen, and mm-hmm. uh, if they're not reformed or rehabilitated. And so, you know, obviously the system is never perfect, uh, and if mm-hmm. it was, we wouldn't be here today. We'd have solved the problem a long time ago. Right. But you know, when you take a human life premeditated, even at sixteen, and you could argue under the professor's theory up until twenty-five. The brain doesn't work. Well, I've seen people that didn't grow up until they were 40. You mm-hmm. know? So mm-hmm. uh, that's hopefully what the judicial system's about and the judges are about and the defense counsel. All of that's litigated and discussed in the sentencing and in these determinations so that it is fair, hopefully, mm-hmm. and, and due process <clears throat> is handled so that there is no, uh, if you will, uh, injustice uh, in the treatment of these uh, juvenile offenders. Mm-hmm. I think arguably, though, it might just be an injustice to look up and apply the concept of mens rea, you know, to, to juvenile offenders, to certain juvenile offenders. And the problem with the neuroscience theories is that they're just general trends and patterns. They don't tell us, uh, for example, what an individual, how mature an individual is. Even if we were to scan an individual defendant in, um, in a lab, there would be no, you know, you can't draw a correlation between structural immaturity, if you could even identify it. And, and behavioral deficiencies. Um, and so it's just general trends and patterns that I think we should be aware of. Um, but I think that, you know, um, the temptation is to go to these more obvious media, you know, highly visible cases. Uh, for example, I think of um, uh, Muhammad, um, John Muhammad, and uh, I'm sorry, his name ex- is escaping me right now, the Washington, D.C. The, the Virginia, Malvo, yeah, the Malvo, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and, and the horrible upbringing he had and, you know, whether he should be tried as an adult or, or a juvenile and, you know, what types of influence he was under. And, you know, I think that's a very difficult determination. We, we tend to go to those types of cases when in reality, many of the, many of the um, and I'm not talking about necessarily Indiana here, but many of the juveniles that do get waived into adult court are for less serious offenses like property crimes, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think it's uh, I think that also should be part of our focus. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, if I could just throw in a couple of things. One, um, in in fact, a juvenile that is uh, sent to the Department of Corrections as a juvenile uh, can remain there until age twenty one. Uh, they don't automatically get out at eighteen. There may be policies uh, that cause the Department of Corrections to release them before that, but the court retains jurisdiction over them until age twenty one, and they can remain in the juvenile. Uh, facilities, correctional facilities until age 21. Let me just say something. Uh, isn't it, is it not true, though, that, that – I may be wrong now. Are those juvenile detention costs been passed to the state? There was a time when the county mm-hmm. had to pick up all those costs. Yeah, the state's paying it now. State is, that's why I thought that had changed. Sorry. Mm-hmm. All right. So as a, as a public defender working you know, with these juveniles, uh, have you been involved in cases where young people have been waived to adult court? Oh, plenty. Yeah, plenty, I've, I figured. I've, I've had a number of them where they weren't, though, too. So, uh-huh. uh, And I've got, uh, I think, three waivers pending right now uh-huh. that I'm working on. And in these cases, I mean, do you, you know, when, when you see these cases, do you think, well, this one really should be in adult court and this one shouldn't be? I mean, from your perspective, do you think there are times when... If I think that, I don't tell anybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> it's his job to resent, represent uh, right. the juvenile. Sure. <laughs> um, generally speaking, I think that... Well, you had asked, you know, what's what's sort of yeah. the downside. A downside can be that if you take a 15-year-old and you send them to the adult system, uh, now, first off, you've got that maybe a 10-year period where their brain still is malleable and, and capable of being changed, being modified, and the child is, is truly capable of some change in personality and, and rehabilitation. They go to the adult system, they're not going to get those services. Uh, secondly, if they're in that adult system, if they're in an adult correctional facility, and Indiana has one where anybody under 18, uh, even from the criminal system, that they will be uh, kept there, um, they go there and they're a little small and a little young. So things don't go well for them. Uh, and it's not just Indiana, but generally speaking, uh, research has shown that the juveniles uh, have a higher rate of suicide. They have a higher rate of sexual molestation and other types of abuse. Um, and the problem society creates for itself by sending juveniles to the, the adult system is when they come out, they've learned how to be real criminals mm-hmm. as opposed to perhaps having been rehabilitated in the juvenile system so that they potentially become <clears throat> citizens. Mm-hmm. 
It's been my Dave? experience on – we're talking about property crimes, sure. you know, where there's not been a person hurt or there's a repeated drug issues. It's my experience that those, those kids have had multiple offenses, have been placed somewhere, not always in a juvenile detention facility, oftentimes in some care facility where they do pretty well. And then they come back home and they continue to offend and the court's exhausted the remedies available to him or her uh, in that process. And, and that's part of the determination. You know, if, you've, if you have used all the juvenile tools that you have and they haven't worked and this kid, this juvenile continues to offend, reoffend, then you have to look at other, other tools. And I'll be the first to admit our tools don't work all the time. Uh, sometimes they do. You know, I, I can remember vividly a female uh, eighth grader who uh, was hired, paid paid a bag of marijuana to kill a man uh, for, a, for a teammate, and uh, she pled guilty, waved into adult court, pled guilty to assisting in a murder. She got, a, I think, a 30-year sentence on that. She came back, uh, and I met her, oh, a couple, three years later, she'd got her high school degree, had started, and she was in a women's prison, and got her high school degree, and, and started on college, and was doing really quite well. And, and I think her chances of modification later uh, to reduce that sentence were very favorable. In fact, I encouraged her, uh, even though I was the prosecutor to put her there, if you will, I encouraged her to uh, continue to do well and uh, seek, seek a modification. And if she continued, she probably would have success. So, it does, you know, we can say that when we send juveniles to prisons that they learn bad habits. But again, they have free will. I mean, no one's saying that they can't think for themselves, even if they're 12, 13, or 14. If you've had a teenage child, you know they think pretty well when they argue with you as a parent. So uh, uh, they still make choices, and if they want to make good choices, there are there are tools available to them to help them uh, if they elect to do that. Mm-hmm. The kids making choices that they can make choices is a very attractive mm-hmm. argument. Mm-hmm. The problem that is, is primarily as adults, I think, that we fail to see is – they can intellectually know the right from wrong, but it's not been internalized the way it is for a mature adult. And I think that's really the major difference uh, from that de- brain development that, that carries on and eventually it is internalized. They're not just doing it because it's a rule or ignoring it because it's just some rule. Uh, they actually understand, empathize, and, and see the reasons not to. And, and actually, I guess I, that almost contradicts myself. They don't have to see the reasons not to. It's how they think that you don't do those things. And it's very difficult for us to look at somebody and say, well, he knew what to do. So it's his fault that he didn't do it. There are a lot of people that know they should brush their teeth every night and don't do it. There are a lot of people that know they should change their oil on their car every 3,000 or 5,000 miles, and they don't do it. Knowing it is different than having it inside you that that's what you do. And we forget that with children, that it's it's even more so. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. The website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. If you uh, just joined us, you're listening to uh, a conversation where we're talking about the juvenile uh, system and the system of waving juveniles into adult court. We have three guests with us today, Jody Madeira from the IU Law School, David Powell, head of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Association or Council, sorry, and Dan Schrader, an attorney with the Indiana Public Defenders Juvenile Court. Um, this is a really complicated and difficult issue that we're tackling here today because, you know, you, you see a, a, a serious crime committed and you have a, a, somebody who's, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old and, you know, you've already talked about how their brain's not really developed very well. But if they if they were to get if they were to be in the juvenile system and get out at 18 years old, their brain still wouldn't be all that well developed for the next five years or so. I mean, it's just you know how how do you you know how, how do you deal with this? And that's you know that's what we're talking about today. Does Indiana's laws how do Indiana's laws compare to other states in terms of dealing with juveniles? David, uh, I I can't answer that completely. I'm only familiar with our rules. Sure. I know our I know our age of tens uh, relatively low. Uh, compared to other states, uh, I want to say, you know, uh, there might be eight or nine others similar to that. So I think that's a specifically low number uh, if we to compare that. But, you know, the legislature they make the rules, and, sure. and as prosecutors, we we try to we try to follow them and enforce them. Uh, so I'm not here to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. I, you know, that's just what it is. Yeah. So 
but I think we're relatively similar uh, with the problems we face. I, you know, if we could if we could solve why people do bad things, uh, you know, we'd have solved that problem a long time ago. I, you know, I tell the story about I was in London one time and I was in this grove of sycamores where they hung everybody that committed a felony. So if you committed a theft back then, you got hung, and, or your option was to go. <laughs> go to Australia uh, to the prison colony, well, guess what? You know, it didn't stop crime. You know, so the deterrent thing is, you know, that's almost silly to say that, you know, people, good people, it deters good people. And I think I use that as Katrina as an example. When Mm -hmm. the rule of law left town in Katrina, even the good people went in and got food and clothing and broke in and took things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when the rule of law is there, uh, good people don't do that. So, but if we could explain why people, you know, do bad things, I'd love to know the answer to that. One thing that uh, a lot of other states, I wouldn't say a lot of other states, actually, some other states do, is they do have these blended sentencing options. And I think um, maybe my fellow uh, panelists here um, could could speak more specifically about them. But what happens is that they really answer their kind of legislative and intelligent legislative responses to the problem of, you know, the fear that the juvenile is going to get out at 18 or 21. And particularly in those cases that are more visible, you know, where... um, you know, let's just take the, the worst of the worst cases where you have a 15, 14, 13, 14, 15 year old who has planned a murder, you know, in cold blood and carried it out. Um, and uh, Columbine, for example, you don't want these people getting out at 18 or 21. There is no uh, no real prescription for rehabilitating these people, perhaps, um, certainly by that time. And uh, what uh, a state with a blended sentencing scheme will do is they will say, okay, um, here is your uh, juvenile sentence. Serve your juvenile sentence. And then uh, I I believe there are varieties of these, but uh, if you reoffend or depending on your performance in the juvenile uh, – uh, um, when you're serving your juvenile sentence, you actually can get an adult sentence of a large adult sentence, sometimes 60, 70 years tacked on. And then if you if if, if that adult sentence is triggered, then you're right there. They, there's no need to retry. There's no need to uh, there's you just you, as, as they say in Monopoly, you go directly to jail, mm-hmm. adult jail at this time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, that was actually a question I was going to ask. It seems like, uh, you know, there, it's kind of an all or nothing. I mean, if you if you're in the juvenile court system, it's a lot different than if you're actually waived to adult court. I mean, the, the sentences are, you know, so much longer in adult court. The the ramifications for you are so much different. And so I guess my question was, is there some kind of hybrid that, that can work? And you're saying there is. Well, you know, Indiana's criminal code was, what, 1977? It's out of date, needs reformed. You know, Indiana prosecutors, and I think public defenders for some sure. time have been saying to the legislature, let's Let's look at the code, you know, and of course, if you look at the entire process, you can look at this criminal process for juveniles and also the sentencing formulas we have. Uh, it is fairly old, needs needs work. I think everybody that works it today would tell you that we would love an opportunity to look at it broad scale and, mm-hmm. and do a lot of changes, not just to the juvenile system, but uh, to the Indiana criminal code and the way we sentence people. Well, it seems to me that the Governor Daniels actually brought that up last year um, in uh is that somebody's phone? <laughs> Governor Daniels brought that up last year. In, uh, it was one of his ideas, I think, to, to have sentencing reform, mm-hmm. and it didn't go anywhere. So I assume uh, the juvenile system would have been part of that. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, we, we've hit uh, halftime of our show now, so we've got the got the alarm clocks uh, turned <laughs> off, and you know, we're, we're, that, I guess that meant halftime. It's time to take a break. <laughs> so you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about uh, juvenile sentencing. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. 
And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and I'm here with three guests today, Jody Madeira from the IU Law School, uh, David Powell, head of the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council, and Dan Schrader, an attorney with the Indiana Public Defenders Juvenile Court, and he's based in Marion County. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can also join a live chat by going to WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Before the break, I brought up uh, the the idea of sentencing reform that Governor Daniels had pushed before the last uh, session of the legislature. But with all the other stuff going on there, blockouts and whatnot, it didn't really go very far. Um, David Powell, you you had some more specifics about that. It didn't really have to do with juvenile courts. Well, I, I think that all generated from a study by this Pew group. And, uh, you know, we Indiana prosecutors then looked hard at that data and found some fl- faults in the data. And it was that was focused on crowding at DOC with adult offenders and, and nonviolent offenders, essentially defelons, which is our lowest felony classification, being in DOC. And the data was found to be defective. And I know now... There's a relook. There's a study commission going on to look at that data, which I know the prosecutors are involved, public defenders, and you know appointees from Governor Daniels to try to get that number right. But I, I am convinced, you know, obviously all of this needs to be looked at, just not the defelons. Right. And right. Uh, we need to look at the whole the whole package. And hopefully, I think it's a two to three year process. And if the legislature gets it started, then uh, we can get to work on that. Good. All right. Well, we have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Glenn on the phone. Glenn. Yes. Go right ahead. All right. Uh, I heard you uh, say if you just knew why people did bad things, that brings up the question, what what is a bad thing? I think that is getting more confusing all the time to young people. When you have people like this Gaga woman teaching the 10-year-olds to be prostitutes and Hollywood pushing sex and violence to the adult world, and, you know, that's what they actually sell the best to adults. Uh, it's why would you? How would you expect children to just naturally know what is good and what's not? I think delinquency begins in the home, and a crime should be result in the same uh, with the same result, no matter if it's an adult or a child, and that would get people's attention. All right, thanks, Glenn. Thanks mm-hmm. for your comments, Dan. He, he really does raise an interesting point, and that is, at what age? Do we think a child should be responsible for what they've done? I mean, obviously, a two-year-old, nobody's going to think of doing anything to them. You're not going to do anything to a six-year-old. Even the ancients had an age of accountability, which I think generally was 13. So when we wave 10-year-olds, we're we're even beyond them. Um, But, you know, when I've I've got a a 12-, 13-year-old client, just a few years ago, they were protoplasm. Uh, and they were brought into this world environment, uh, and oftentimes, because they're my clients, it's because they've had a bad home life. Sometimes they've been taught uh, these behaviors that are not acceptable to society and have, have been uh, made criminal acts. What chance did they ever get? Uh, the only chance they might get is if we do uh, deal with them in the juvenile system. Uh, and provide them with what we can uh, for rehabilitative services. And we know a number of those things work. Uh, Incarceration generally is not one of those things. Uh, But they deserve some chance from society. And most people, it's just easier to think of them, well, they committed a terrible crime, so let's throw away the key. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. There's always a public safety argument. You know, I mean, we're focused at, focusing in this discussion from the juveniles aspect, but there's also a public safety uh, argument you always have to consider is do we protect the community from this offender? Uh, but in Indiana, it is unconstitutional for anyone or a prosecutor even to make an argument that we punish for punishment's sake. 
our Constitution says we we always look to reform and rehabilitation, acknowledging that there are some people that you cannot reform or rehabilitate, and those folks are sometimes hard to sort out, and sometimes they are even juveniles. I have seen juveniles that were essentially, according to my probation officer, pure evil, and nothing was going to fix them. And fortunately, those are a minority. Now, with regard to the gentleman caller, uh, having done juveniles for 18 to 21 years, I always tried to figure out why this kid went bad. And it's clear that children today are challenged. Uh, many of them are raising themselves with both parents working and them coming home. And the good news is most of the children who are raising themselves are doing a pretty good job. The bad news is there are a few that do fall off. And hopefully, you know, with good with good rehabilitative tools, we get that fixed and get them on into a successful adult life. But it is a complex world. Uh, I'm seeing lots of troubling things with phones, sexting, texting, inappropriate uh, types of things going on with juveniles. Uh, and I know uh, law enforcement is struggling at how to deal with, if you will, this evolution in communication uh, that's going on, especially with children. And much of that communication, or some of that communication is very inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have not figured out, I don't think, uh, how to deal with that quite yet and what the answers are, whether it is even in the criminal justice system. Uh, but it's a complicated world today, no question. No question, but we probably have to apologize to Lady Gaga because I don't think she really teaches people to be prostitutes. <laughs> she might, however, teach them to wear steaks. She, that's true. She might. All right. Our phone number is again 855-0811-877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website if you want to go there and join us for um, a live chat. Um, you know, the the issue of, of juvenile justice and juvenile crime has been with us for a, a, a really long time. I mean, it seems to me that uh, 10, 20 years ago, we started talking in Bloomington anyway about gangs and young people joining gangs and that juvenile crime was getting worse. I mean, can you sort of take a long – you've been involved in this for a while. Can you take a longer look and say, you know, are juveniles doing more heinous things today? Is there really a trend we should be – concerned with or is are things kind of the way they always have been there's you know a lot of a lot of bad things happen with young people but it's not any worse than it has been jody um as a media scholar as well as a legal scholar um i would like to you know throw one comment in which is just that the public perception has changed tremendously with the rise of programs um programming like cnn and 24-hour news cable channels that uh draw attention and and the kind of if it bleeds it leads headline so i think even if it hasn't changed and i'm not sure i can't i can't really answer that uh you know i think that certain types of you know crimes have changed uh the uh the school shootings, for example, have gotten more prevalent. Um, but again, that also could be related to the media um, and copycat issues. And I think that the public perception is such that uh, these crimes are on the rise, even though crime generally is trending downward, and that particularly more violent crimes are on the rise. And I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that trend has been with us since the 1980s, you know, where uh, we've had this, we've come out of this war on crime mentality. Uh, so even if it has not, uh, it is not significantly different than, than the 1900, earlier 1900s uh, uh uh, going back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, there's the public perception, the very powerful public perception, mm-hmm. which ends up being the legislative perception that it is worse. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we all get questions about what's wrong with kids these days. Well, first off, to reassure people, we're only seeing five, maybe up to 10 percent of kids. That means 90 to 95 percent of kids aren't getting in this kind of trouble and doing this sort of thing. Um, back in the 90s, in the early 90s, uh, there was a, a big push about the super predators that were growing up, these teenagers that were in gangs, and it was just they were going to be horrible. We wouldn't be able to control them. Well, as it turns out, that wasn't correct. Uh, in fact, since that time, since about 95, 96, uh, as uh, the crime statistics, statistics have gone down, including juvenile offenses, um, because of the economy, I think we're, we may be seeing more property offenses right now. Um, and in terms of the uh, handgun or, the, or the, the murders, I haven't seen an increase in the number uh, that we have come through our court in Marion County. So I, I don't think there's any increase in that. Uh, it's just that they do get more publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so th- there's not as much to fear as, as we like to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think violent crime and overall crime has come down. But there has been a strong response in the last 20 years, more law enforcement officers, you know, more, more court systems, more tools. So that's a, that's a good thing. Unfortunately, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we can ever eliminate it completely. There's always going to be criminal conduct uh, as long as humans are willing to, you know, do things that they're sure. not supposed to do. Sure. But uh, I think it's better, but certainly there's still a lot of work to do. By the way, the the incidence of school shootings, I think that's gone down from the point in time when Columbine happened and there was this hysteria right. uh, about it. Uh, in fact, it, it never was as widespread as as we thought. Uh, and I think it didn't really even increase that many school homicides from what it had been. They just had not been so wild and famous. Uh, additionally, um, with the school homicides, um, most of those kids, the ones we just talked about on Columbine, for example, they were adults in, in terms of Indiana's law mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. So they would have not been treated as juveniles in any event. Mm-hmm. I don't. One of you said something because our phones have lit up, have, uh, <laughs> you know, have lighted up here. So Mark is on the phone. Let's see if we can get uh, get Mark. Mark. Hi. Hey, go ahead. Hey, uh, hi. I've heard uh, everybody on the panel make really good points. I just wanted to add one thing, maybe uh, to Glenn's point, the caller. Um, uh, you know, with the availability of games, you know, like um, that celebrate crime, like uh, what do you call Grand Theft Auto. It's interactive. Kind of teaches kids the skills that they need to commit crimes. And then, as the adults, you know, we have uh, we have on the other hand the drug dealers who could see juveniles as a as an available and capable labor pool um, with minimum risk, and it's, it's a good recruiting tool for them. So if we're going to routinely and easily wave kids into it uh, um, or, or keep kids rather uh, try it as juveniles, I think it makes it a little bit more appealing to the adults that might be looking to, to recruit children into crime. So um, it, it's a tough call on both sides right. of the conversation. Hey, thanks a lot for your call. I know Jody wants to respond to this. Um, yes, just on the, the games point, you know, um, first of all, very, very good point about, you know, it's it's a very um, good recruitment tool. I mean, how many of you guys have watched The Wire, right? And uh, they recruit these very young children uh, into these uh, the drug culture, as and part of it is because, um, you know, well, it's a way to make money. It's also, uh, even if you get caught, they'll just let you go. And they tell them that, even though that's not true. You know, that's The Wire, but again, um, you know, I'm sure the same thing happens uh, with the manipulation of older um, older juveniles and, and adults on on very immature uh, and young young populations I think uh, as far as the violent video games go that kind of in this is in the same league as lady Gaga um, I think uh, it's very difficult to say that violent video games even Grand Theft Auto teach you anything more than to press press B a uh, or C or D on a control pad you know they do not teach you how to kill people they do not give you the the direct impulse to kill people um, and I think, you know, we have to return again to the fact that it's, uh, you know, unstable families, unsafe housing, lack of economic opportunities, lack of um, effective medical and mental health care and poor schooling that is is uh, the genesis of these of these problems. And, of course, when you get somebody who's placed into the juvenile system and is rehabilitated, the problem is that sometimes they're returned back to the same environment. Yeah, and I've, seen that. I've seen that a lot where we've taken uh, young juveniles out of uh, a bad home and place them into a very nice corrective facility and they start making good grades and look better and act more appropriately and then we bring them home, put them back where they were and six months later we see them again, right. worse this time. And I know that's extremely frustrating for the courts and everyone involved. You know, but parents have a right to be bad parents sometimes and, you know, how do we determine, you know, how far to go there? We have to have a free society and allow people to m- make mistakes too and I know that, you know, we don't have control necessarily over the parents, and I've seen judges lecture parents and, you know, threaten them uh, if they don't change. But that is true. You know, some of these kids where, this, where it does work, they go back to a bad environment and simply go back to the way they were, and that's, that is frustrating. It that's, seems like in a perfect world, the juvenile delinquency and juvenile justice system would go hand in hand with the child welfare system much right. more. There'd be, And I think there is in Indiana. Actually, Indiana is. is quite progressive there is, there is. with There's this dialogue. There is. There's coordination, but some people, you just can't change them. Mm-hmm. 
All right, we, let's go to Ken next. Ken? Yes, um, I've always been concerned about statutory rape laws, and, and now that, that someone who's convicted of this is considered a lifetime sex offender, uh, I wonder if you consider this as a law that should be reformed. Uh, I know the age of consent varies quite a bit from state to state, from country to country, so obviously civilized society doesn't agree on these ages, and, and I don't even like the idea of an arbitrary age. But uh, let me tell you, I mean, if you look at Kinsey statistics and more modern statistics, uh, there's an awful lot of um, 17-year-olds sleeping with an awful lot of 15-year-olds, maybe as much as a third. So to select one or two people out of a class or whatever to uh, suffer a lifetime of, of being labeled and basically having their lives ruined and wasted, I think is a, more of a crime than anything that, the, that, that these young people are doing. Let's get some response from our panel. Do you want to respond to that? Do you want me to? Go ahead. Yeah, well, Indiana, uh, that, you know, when you have consensual um, uh, 17, 17 year olds having consensual sex with uh, you know fourteen and fifteen year olds you know let 's just say fifteen year olds certainly that was clearly against the law in Indiana at one point uh, the legislature recognizing that in some of these consensual situations where there were on what they call ongoing relationships dating relationships have created a defense available to uh, defendants who are charged i think it 's called the Ro- Romeo and Juliet kind of provision. Mm-hmm. But if, if there is an ongoing dating relationship uh, among people of close in age and that age, it is a defense and are not being prosecuted now if that's the case. So uh, I think the gentleman's concern about the 17 and the 15-year-old has been addressed by the Indiana legislature and, and uh, you know, that particular issue has been addressed. Now, how, how, okay, so how does that work in terms of the, the age range? I mean, if there, was a, if, if, if there was a very young girl, let's say 13, who had an ongoing relationship with uh, the ages are set out in the statute they, so okay. yeah I, I want to say 14 14 is the, yeah. the age and, and you, you it doesn't work for a 15 year old and a 50 year old either so right. i mean there's yeah. i think a yeah. four-year okay four-year spread on each end but it's to protect those dating teenagers if you will yeah. mm-hmm. who are engaging quite candidly in risky behavior <laughs> especially if they're having unprotected sex and at that age i mean i've told many young girls young women who have are engaging in that behavior in the juvenile court system that a pregnancy you know, is a life sentence. I mean, if you have that child. I think child, the guy should hear that too. Yeah, yeah. of course. But, uh, you know, when you see kids and you, you find out they're engaging oftentimes in high-risk behavior with drugs, alcohol, and sexual behavior, that uh, unfortunately the girl's typically the one who gets stuck with that. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we again, it's that free will problem, you know, where people can do what they want in America to the large part. Right. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, the phones again. Katie from Spencer is on the phone. Katie? Good morning. Afternoon. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, I wanted to comment on something the gentleman said earlier, but I also want to say in my years I've learned that good moral people can be poor, middle class, or rich. I think it's a choice of the family. Um, I'm not going to say that just because you lost your job you become immoral or whatever. But anyway, um, you made a comment on accountability by the ancients, you call them. I'll call them Israelites, okay? Um, that um, 13, I have researched that a little bit, and to inform your Christian-based audience or whoever is listening, um, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 29, they're out in the desert, they just refused to go in, and the Lord said, Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which had murmured against me. God held 20 accountable. Um, I checked this with um, a rabbi at a synagogue, and he said, yeah, 13 means they're old enough to participate in the festivals and the ceremonies. They're not accountable. Hmm. So God holds 20 years and up accountable. So make of that what you will. Um, I believe children should be allowed to be children and have some room to get through their hormones and grow and deal with all the things that they need to deal with. So... God bless you. Right. Good luck with your discussion. Right. Interesting. You know, <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Let me just... Bye-bye. I was at a conference uh, uh, in Washington, D.C. a few years ago on, uh, you know, we were talking about Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, there was a female attorney speaking who had been in the military in Afghanistan dealing with female issues, and one of the things she told me, which caught me off guard, that 40% of the children in Afghanistan are born to girls 14. Well, and under and mm-hmm. and the and the you know of course they have a fifty percent death rate and from the Afghans' perspective, culturally that if they don't 
if women don't start having children at 13 and 14 and have lots of them, they don't have any people left simply because the death rates are so high. And, and I remember vividly a child molest case I tried one time where, where during jury selection we had an 80-some-year-old, very religious, well-known lady uh, who was a juror who, when I asked the question about the 15-year-old who had had sexual intercourse and been impregnated by the 40-year-old, we were prosecuting and we did successfully prosecute and convict him. But uh, in jury selection, she said when her grandparents at the turn of the century got married, they were 15 and 14. And uh, we forget that when we go back into the 80s, I mean the 1880s, you know, uh, all of these ages that we placed on on things uh, have certainly evolved. And in a more evolved culture like ours, the ages get higher, right. I mean, in our country. Yeah. Yep, and, and the life expectancy has grown, too, which maybe has grown the age of uh, of – you know, prolonged childhood, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is the website if you want to go there for a live chat. We have just um, seven or eight minutes to go. And, you know, we had that flurry of phone calls. So we'll see if we have some other questions out there. I wanted to ask each of you, you know, when you when you think about, you know, Indiana's laws as, as it pertains to juvenile offenders, you know, are there some recommendations? Dan, are there things that you think should that you would be more comfortable with in terms of the laws of the state if they were changed or the things you would lobby lobby for with the, the next session of the legislature for instance there are a few substance substantive um, statutes that I'd, I'd like to see uh, eliminated or mitigated in some way uh, a number of things that were just second nature to us when I was a kid which was a while ago, but not that long ago, um, are now illegal for a kid to do. And uh, most like, of my like what? Well, most of my friends have heard this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in high school, I was on our ROTC pistol team. They gave me a pistol to take home with me, and then to take to uh, shooting matches. It's the only time I've ever had a gun. Nowadays. That's never going to happen. In fact, ROTC now uses BB guns. They don't even have real guns uh, for shooting. Um, It used to be, and and this would apply more to some probably county uh, or um, uh, rural uh, counties, Um, used to be kids might go out and do some hunting with their shotgun. Nowadays, that's illegal uh, unless they have specific permission or they, they meet some other qualifications. Um, and it's it's not just gun things, but any number of things that we did normally uh, nowadays have been criminalized. Um, if if we got in a fight at school in in our you, day, you and I, sure, okay, sure, okay. Um, you'd have gone home, told your mom, your mom would have called my mom, my mom would have beat me, and made me come down and apologize to you. Nowadays, they call the police, and the police get involved for a B misdemeanor battery. That means there's no one, no, not even an injury. It's just a rude, insolent, or angry touching. So we've we've gone a little overboard on on corralling behavior by kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'll get to the other two in a minute, but we have a phone call, so I want to get to that one first. So let's go to Ted. Ted's from Kokomo. Ted? Hello. Uh, I was wondering at what age or uh, – let me phrase this differently. When can juvenile records be sealed – or can they be unsealed for, like, sentencing after they reach adulthood? Uh, and I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ted. Um, they're not particularly sealed. There is more confidentiality to juvenile records than there would be to adult records. If uh, a child picks up or becomes an adult and picks up uh, a felony conviction, uh, those juvenile records can be used as a matter of aggravation uh, as to, see, he was doing the same sort of stuff when he was a juvenile. And so it can affect the sentence. Yeah, there's, uh, a, there's a pre-sentence investigation of court orders mm-hmm. and all. And most felony, they don't have to in defelonies, but in most felony convictions, if there's a juvenile record in the background, it's part of that uh, pre-sentence. Now, that pre-sentence is a confidential document that stays within uh, the system, if you will, and can travel with the offender to the DOC. But those juvenile records are are available and are used in our system currently, I think. There is a provision, though, to have them expunged yeah. if, if the child 
uh, comes to the court later and says, I, you know, I've cleaned up my life. I'm doing well. This is sort of a, an anchor around my neck. Could you eliminate that? And if the court grants that, it's, it's as if it never happened. Yeah, yeah, most judges are pretty liberal in that sure. regard mm-hmm. if the kid's done well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Dave Powell, I wanted to ask you the same question that Dan answered. Are there things that you think should that the legislature should look at? You talked about that. Well, there's no, you know, in my view, there's no one thing. You yeah. know, I, I just think it, it, like the criminal code, is one of those areas that deserves study. And I'm confident, you know, if we were to look at the entire package, uh, and especially as it relates to, uh, you know, family support, FSA, and how we coordinate with them, especially for a lot, you know, the thing that's frustrating, you know, is a lot of minor offenders and a lot of kids that clearly could be helped uh, are probably not getting help because of issues at home. Uh, you know, we could we could certainly try to do a better a better job there of coordinating you know, if you will, training the parent uh, to provide a better environment at home. Jody, any um, thoughts? Yes, I think I have one uh, where, you know, it's not going to address those cases uh, like the Columbines, like like uh, that, but it will address the vast majority of cases. And uh, I would like to see increased uh, state and, commun- and community partnership. Um, first of all, this, this will take some of the fiscal load off of the criminal justice system. Um, and when I talk about partnership, I mean programs like uh, here in Bloomington, we have the Community Justice and Mediation Center, where we can take property offenders, um, you know, uh, not particularly serious assaults, and uh, we actually um, hold offenders accountable in a different means uh, by by forcing them to acknowledge that they are responsible, forcing them to confront the harm that they have had, uh, the harmful effects they've had upon the lives of victims and, and the community in general. And I think that is a, an inexpensive but effective way mm-hmm. to handle a lot of these cases mm-hmm. in addition to parole, et cetera. Okay, great. We are out of time. I want to thank you all for being here today. Thank you to Jody Madeira, David Powell, and Dan Schrader. Thanks. It was a Great discussion. A very complicated and difficult issue. <laughs> I also want to thank uh, my co-host, Mary Catherine, who couldn't be here today, and also producer Gretchen Frazee and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.